the night had an electric feeling to it at the garden. The garden was sold out. And I remember it being in my 43 years in boxing, one of the most exciting nights ever. I mean, Ali came in in the middle of the night and the entire crowd chanted his name. It feels just like an old-time fight. Old-time Madison Square Just before the main event, there's an undercard fight. Two boxers, they're kind of small fry compared to the likes of Ali, are facing off in the ring. Coming up, Irish Billy Collins against welterweight Lewis Resto. Fighters like that very often take fights to get the payday. And this was a good payday because it was at Madison Square Garden on a very major show. And Steve's not paying much attention at first. Like everybody else, he's waiting for the title fight. A lot of times in the, in the press section, we, we take some of the undercard fights sort of for granted. We don't pay full, strict attention. Then suddenly, he starts to take notice. One of the fighters is taking a beating. And it's not a regular boxing beating. He's getting his face smashed in. I mean, his eyes, above his eyes, on his eyelids, and below his eyes, both eyes, turned totally black and blue during the fight. And it looked like he was not being hit by gloves. It looked like he was being hit by a baseball bat. What Steve didn't know at the time is that he was witnessing one of the most heinous acts of cheating in boxing history. This seemed to just go one step further. And it was a step that was an ugly step. And it happened in a sport that occasionally is very ugly, normally by itself. So it's, it's a story of what man is capable of. And uh, in that sense, it's a very disturbing story. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a series that tells the inside stories behind some of the biggest scandals in history and tries to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? In this episode, we're going to take you back to the early 80s to find out what led to one of the most shameful fights in boxing history. It's a story about money, power, and a sport where the rules of the game are the only thing standing between you and anarchy. I want to take you back to that scene at Madison Square Garden. The place is packed, jammed to the rafters. It's the biggest crowd in 10 years, and the noise is beginning to build. I'm at ringside in press row, and I can hear like a murmur. And the murmur begins to be louder and louder. It's like a wave breaking on a, on a beach on the shore. It's a crescendo of noise as more people see the fighters. At the time, they climb the steps and the trainer lifts up one of the ropes so the guy can get in the ring. All hell breaks loose. That's veteran reporter Jerry Eisenberg. I'm the columnist emeritus at the Newark Star-Ledger, the largest paper in New Jersey. And I've been in this business for 70 years. I'm 90 now. I did the first 53 Super Bowls. I did 55 Kentucky Derbies. I did 49 World Series. And uh, if it happened, I saw it. But Jerry says there's nothing like the Garden on a big fight night. Cigars and the smell of sweat, the hot and bright lights on your face. The place was always packed with all sorts of characters. It was like a movie. The gamblers were there. The celebrities, always packed with celebrities. And all of them had 
gorgeous women on their arm, you know, and these are mafia guys and their girlfriends and, and, and manufacturing guys and their girlfriends, not too many wives, a lot of girlfriends, not too many wives. I mean, all these beautiful women walking around fur coats in the summer in a hot arena, sounds like the show was ringside just as much as it was in the ring. But meanwhile, upstairs... People who didn't have the money, they sat upstairs and they had the habit of stamping their feet. It sounded like an earthquake. The earthquake was loud that night because everybody was there to see the big title fight, Roberto Duran versus Davey Moore. This was an age where one particular weight class was dominating the sport. The middleweights, the guys they call the four kings, Hearns, Hagler, Leonard, and Duran. You see, back in the old days, it was the heavyweights who were the big draw. But heavyweight fights had gotten boring. They became caricature-like. Two big guys lumbering around the ring, never really punching each other. That's not why people go and watch boxing. Most boxing fans go for what reason? They want to see a guy knocked on his ass. And these guys could put you on your ass, and they put each other on their asses. And this is why the Garden was packed that night, for this big title fight between two of the hardest-hitting boxers in the world. But just before the big fight, there was the undercard fight between two young middleweights, a young brawler from the Bronx named Louis Resto and Billy the Irishman Collins, an undefeated prospect out of Tennessee. Jerry wasn't so interested in the undercard fight. Remember, Jerry's been around for a while. I did the first 53 Super Bowls. I did 35 Kentucky Derbies. I did 49 World Series. And uh, if it happened, I saw it. But what was about to happen, not even Jerry had seen before. You know, everybody talks about fair play in, in, in football and soccer and, and baseball and, you know, and three cheers afterwards, hip, hip, hooray. Boxing is a little different. It's a sport in which you can lose your life. That's why they went to jail. It was criminal assault. To understand this story, we have to understand the two fighters in the ring that night, Billy Collins and Louis Resto. We'll start with Billy. Billy was young. Billy Collins was a young fighter from the, from the summers in the South. He could fight. His father trained him, which generally is not a good thing in boxing. But in this case, he did a good job. And consequently, um, he could fight. You got to understand, old heads like Jerry, they won't say you can fight if they don't mean it. An old trainer who was like a surrogate father to me used to say that to me. If he said you could fight, you were among the top few prospects in the world, and he could fight. Billy was a small guy. He kind of looked like a pubescent teenager with mousy ginger hair. His family was all fighting. His dad was also a boxer, almost had a shot at the welterweight title. When he quit boxing because of too many punches to the head, he started training dogs, pit bulls, for fighting. For Billy's dad, when it comes to fighting, whether it be dogs or men, he had one basic rule. You had to be tough. And so Billy Jr. grew up tough. But family was important. He had a wife and a baby on the way. He was happy. He's a young, undefeated fighter with a bright future in the sport. 
Collins certainly uh, seemed to have everything on his side. Momentum, youth, strength and aggressiveness. Good puncher. That's Steve Farhood. He's a boxing historian and was also in the garden that night. Up until that point, he was 14th, you know. But tonight at the garden was his biggest fight yet. It was his garden debut. A debut in one of the most hallowed boxing arenas in America. It was maybe the biggest night of his life so far. It was his chance to confirm his place as one of the hottest prospects in boxing. His opponent that night, the night that was going to turn Billy Collins into a superstar, was a very different kind of fighter. Collins was all about hope and and promise and potential. And how far could he go, a young fighter, you know, in his early 20s? And Resto was a fighter who was a veteran, a tough guy, but not going anywhere, certainly not going to contend for a championship. To give you some background on Louis Resto, he was born in the Bronx in 1955, a poor kid from a poor neighborhood. He didn't like school much, and when he was 13, he elbowed his math teacher in the face during class. He spent six months in a rehabilitation center for the mentally disturbed, and as soon as he got out, his uncle signed him up for boxing lessons. It's the Puerto Rican side of the Bronx. And, you know, and, and you, there aren't too many captains of industry living there. It's, it's tough, that it's hard for them to make a living, and they get the grunt jobs. So with the grunt jobs or no jobs at all, Boxing could often be a way out for young kids who weren't doing so well at school. It had a heritage of loving boxing. Spanish Harlem and parts of the Bronx were the biggest producers of New York-raised fighters of color. Jerry says boxing has always been a way for people to escape poverty. You've got to be pretty hungry to want to be a fighter. I mean, I never saw anybody at Oxford or Harvard say, I think I'll go out and let some trap hit me in the face for a while and see how I like that. I hate to say this because depression makes fighters and, and, and hunger makes fighters. And in some ways, that was Resto. He wasn't a very talkative guy. He seemed shy and reserved, but in boxing, he was able to express himself. You're poor. You're going to do whatever you can do to get out, you know, but you got to be able to fight. And this dude, Resto... He could fight. He couldn't fight as well as Billy, not nearly as well, but he could fight. He'd had a decent career. He was what they call in the industry a brawler. He wanted to be in close with you. The key for a guy to fight against a mauler, a brawler, is to be able to get in and out, in and out. You go in, bang, bang, and you're out. And when you come out, if you go straight back, your head will wind up in Poughkeepsie. And to be clear, Resto had knocked plenty of people's heads back to Poughkeepsie in his time. But recently, he'd taken some heavy losses, and he's now in his 30s. He'd been around the block. He didn't move as fast as he used to. And this fight against Irish Billy Collins, the top prospect from Tennessee, was basically kind of a payday for him. Fighters like that very often take fights to get the payday. And this was a good payday because it was at Madison Square Garden on a very major show. Boom. So here we are. The two fighters ready to go mano a mano. The Irishman against the brawler from the Bronx. There was only meant to be one winner, and that was Billy Collins. He was the heavy favorite, the undefeated prospect. All of the odds in his favor. And then someone came along and decided he was going to change the odds. Panama Lewis was capable of doing anything he needed to do to, to get his fighter to win. He, as a technical trainer, he was very highly thought of. 
but also considered a little bit of a loose cannon and um, perhaps not, uh, you know, didn't always play by the rules. That's coming up after the break. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The reason this fight went from being just your standard undercard fight in the garden to one that will live in infamy forever is really because of one person. Louis Resto's trainer, a guy named... Panama Lewis. He had the kind of reputation that worried fathers put their daughters in nunneries to avoid their getting a further reputation. Panama Lewis's reputation hadn't always been bad. He trained the light welterweight champion of the world. Mike Tyson even said he was the best trainer in the business. He was a success. And he looked the part. I mean, you gotta see this guy. He was a larger-than-life character. He had jewelry like Mr. T, gold everywhere, rings on almost every finger, gold teeth, big gold earrings, and he was the guy that wore sunglasses at night and indoors at all times. He was a showman. But people didn't really trust him. And that was because of one fight that happened just a year before the Collins Resto bout. Panama Lewis had been training one of the hottest prospects in the U.S., a guy named Aaron Pryor. He was already a star with 31 wins and zero losses. The fight was legendary. Two great boxers going punch for punch. But then after one particularly tough round, Pryor came back to Panama Lewis's corner. In between rounds, he hollered to a second, give me the bottle, meaning the water bottle. That's what Jerry thought anyway. But then everyone at home could see Lewis saying, no, the other bottle. Turns out the other bottle wasn't just water. He had a habit, he would mix aspirin with water, and that was the other bottle. And when a fighter was really fatigued, and and at that point Aaron was getting fatigued, it improved his endurance. And Pryor's effort that night was pretty incredible. His energy and his effort were were amazing. So who knows what was in that bottle? But that just led to 
a further belief that Panama Lewis was capable of doing anything he needed to do to, to get his fighter to win. He, as a technical trainer, he was very highly thought of, but also considered a little bit of a loose cannon and um, perhaps not, uh, you know, didn't always play by the rules. Okay, let's step back for a minute here and think about why rules in boxing are so crucial. I mean, let's be honest. Boxing is two people trying to beat each other's brains out. But when you apply rules, it makes it a sport where the lives of the boxers are protected while the spirit of the competition is still alive. These rules basically go back to the 19th century. Boxers are meant to be the same weight, fight for the same time, and so on and so on. And you all have the same equipment. This is what separates a boxing match from a street fight. But we all know where there are rules, there are people looking for ways to get around them. In fact, according to Jerry, when Cain fought Abel way back in the dawn of time... I suspect very much that Cain cheated Abel, which is why God stuck a big mark on his forehead. I think uh, cheating has been going on forever. And because there's a lot of cheating, there's also a lot of different ways to cheat. You could use drugs like Panama Lewis. You can get one boxer to lose on purpose. Or you can even buy off the judges. Cheating in boxing is almost always about one thing. Money. That night, just before the Collins-Resto fight, big money had started to come down on Resto's side. Bets for Resto to win. The problem was, Resto wasn't meant to win. He was a journeyman, and his opponent was the hot prospect. Everyone thought this was Collins' fight. And that is why Panama Lewis decided to do something to change the odds, to change the outcome of the fight. And, they, and apparently big bets were made, which apparently was a motivation for the disgusting thing that followed. So I'm opening this video of Louis Resto and Billy Collins Jr. fight. Let me see. Take it full screen here. All right. I'm ready. You ready? Five, four, three, two, one, play. This guy, Billy, looks like a all-American white guy. He's like, he looks like a little kid. And Resto's coming in with the rat tail. Well, you can see right away they came to fight. Oh, yeah. You can see it. These two dudes are beating each other's brains out, but then if you look beyond the ropes into the audience, some folks are just chilling like it's a cocktail party. But as the fight goes on, something weird starts to happen. Ooh, Resto just stung him in the face. Ooh. Oh, oh, Resto is lighting his ass up. What's crazy is the... the the punches they're exchanging, it seems even, but Billy's face is swelling up and Resto's face isn't. I mean, his eyes, above his eyes, on his eyelids, and below his eyes, both eyes, turned totally black and blue during the fight. 
and it looked like he was not being hit by gloves. It looked like he was being, had been hit by a baseball bat. You don't, you, you just didn't see faces like that. Even in the worst of beatings in boxing, you didn't see faces like that. When you watch the tape, you can see each punch Resto lands is just making Collins' face swell up more and more. He looks puffy. His eye could hardly close. Blood running down his face. And remember, Collins was meant to win this fight easily. Collins might be taking the punches, but as you're watching this fight, you can tell something's up. Something just doesn't feel right. With time, as the fight progressed through the seventh, eighth, ninth rounds, you just had the impression of wanting it to stop because Collins was taking such a beating. He just wasn't in the fight. And remember, this was the fighter who was heavily favored going in. Ah, uh, they're putting the ice, the cold pack on Billy Collins' face. He's starting to swell up. This, that's one tough son of a bitch right there. I don't even know if he, if his eyes are still open. It doesn't look like it. Blood's coming out of the left one. Resto, he sees blood in the water and he's, he's going for the kill. Oh, oh my goodness. After 10 long rounds, the fight finally comes to an end. Collins just looks done. He's beat. He's black and blue all over. It's pretty tough to watch. And then this thing happens that if you're watching at home, you probably miss it. Hardly anyone in the arena would have seen it. On TV, we see Collins go back to his corner. There, his father, if you remember, is his trainer, greets him, gives him a pat down. Resto is dancing around the ring. He's the winner. He's kissing his glove. His trainer, Panama Lewis, lifts him up into the air. The Puerto Rican fans in the crowd are going crazy. Resto looks like he hadn't even broken a sweat. And in a show of good sportsmanship, he goes over to Collins. He hugs him, plants a kiss on his face. Collins hugs him back. And then Collins' father goes to congratulate Resto. And this is where it happens. As Collins Sr. shakes Resto's glove, you can see his face start to turn. He suddenly looks interested. Resto is trying to withdraw, and Collins keeps holding on to the glove. He won't let it go. Resto tries to pull away again, and Collins pulls him right back, jerks him back. And this is when he begins to put it together. He wondered how his son got beaten so badly, how his face ended up like that. And as he stands there holding Resto's gloved hand, he realizes it's the gloves. There's no padding in the gloves. Now Collins' dad is screaming. Jerry's in the crowd and he starts to notice what's going on. I'm yelling at him now that the fighters are still in the ring getting ready to leave and I'm saying, get the gloves, get the gloves, get the gloves. What happened next after the break? I'm yelling at him, get the damn gloves.
If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying (laughs) to pretend that I don't right Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. We're back and the fight has just ended. Jerry Eisenberg is standing by the side of the ring, screaming at the referee. I'm yelling at him, get the damn gloves. The commentators aren't paying much attention, but there's chaos going on in the ring. Resto is still celebrating, but at that moment, the fight footage cuts to black. I think if we were paying more strict attention, we would have said, this is unusual even by boxing standards. You know, his face was so bruised and, and black and blue. But no, I don't, I don't think anybody thought that anything foul was going on. But something foul had been going on. Just before the fight, as the boxers were sitting in the locker room waiting to go out. Panama Lewis had come to give Resto one last pep talk. But that wasn't the only thing he was bringing to Resto. He had also brought a knife into the locker room with him. When the gloves were looked at later, the referees found... On the wrist side of the glove, on the, on the back side of the glove, a small hole had been opened. Boxing gloves are padded. It's part of those rules that separate boxing from street fighting. A thick layer of padding is stuffed into the gloves to protect both fighters. Otherwise, it's barbarism that ends in broken fists and broken faces. When Panama Lewis walked into the locker room that night in June of 1983, he took the padding out of the gloves to make sure his fighter's punches carried greater weight against Billy Collins to make sure Resto won the fight. That was not something we had heard before, but in essence, you're, you're taking a glove that is a dangerous weapon to begin with because you're punching with it so hard and you're making it that much more devastating because there's less padding. And it wasn't just taking the padding out. Evidence emerged later that Lewis had also dipped Resto's hand wraps in plaster of Paris. The hand wraps were dipped in plaster. Why didn't you just give him a hammer and say, go out and fight? That night, as they watched Billy Collins' face get darker and darker and his eyes closed further and further, no one in the garden imagined what was really going on. Well... 
when I heard that there, there was padding removed from the gloves, in the boxing world, which is a crazy and at times free-for-all lawless world, the idea that somebody would take padding out of gloves is about as low as you can get. It is just the lowest thing for, for obvious reasons. Fighters are putting their lives on the line, going into the ring under normal circumstance. The idea of taking out padding from a boxer's gloves just was incomprehensible. It's not something we had seen or had heard of. Um, was a, an absolutely disgusting thought and remains as such now. And it was about to get worse. After the fight, Billy Collins essentially went blind. The first time his young wife saw him, she said he looked like he was straight out of a horror movie. Pretty soon it was clear. His boxing career was over. He started drinking, staying out late, and taking pills for the pain. Then one cold night, just a year after the fight, he was drunk. He took a car out, and no one really knows what happened next. But Billy Collins' car ended up in a ditch on the side of the road, and Billy Collins ended up dead. Some people said it was an accident. Other people called it suicide. Jerry Eisenberg has his own suspicions. Supposing you were Rembrandt, all right? I don't know if you could draw a straight line even, but let's suppose you're Rembrandt. And let's suppose you got a gambling debt. And someone comes in and hits every one of your fingers with a hammer. And you can never paint again. You think you might kill yourself? The moment Louis Resto started hitting Billy Collins with those tampered gloves, he was taking away Billy's art. But what about Resto and his trainer, Panama Lewis? Both of them were found guilty of assault, criminal possession of a weapon, the weapon being Resto's hands, and conspiracy. They were sent to prison. Resto served two and a half years, and Panama six. And you know, throughout this whole story, there's always been the question, did Louis Resto know what he was doing? We reached out to him to ask him about this, but he doesn't want to talk. Instead, we have to rely on what he said in the past. For many years, Louis Resto denied that he knew anything about the glove tampering, said it was all Panama Lewis, that Lewis had done it behind his back. He denied it, and he denied it, and he denied it. But then in 2007, a documentary filmmaker found Resto and spoke to him for hours. And finally, Resto admitted that he was in the room when Lewis took the padding out, that he saw Lewis coat his wraps in plaster, he did it because he was scared of Lewis, of losing, of being forgotten. Resto is sorry for what he did. He even went to Tennessee to visit Billy Collins' widow and her mother. He sobbed into Billy's mother's arms and apologized for what happened. They told him to stop carrying around the guilt, to go on with his life with his head held up. They forgave him. I did visit Louis Resto years later when he was living in a, in a very, very rundown, kind of disgusting property in the basement of a gym in the Bronx. Resto had been banned from boxing for life, and there he was, still living in the basement of a boxing gym. And it was a very small space, no windows, no light. 
And this is what his life had come to, you know, after he got out of jail. He was never really able to move on from what happened. And, um, you know, he, I don't know that he understood it, but, but obviously his life was never again going to be the same. Some people will call boxing barbaric. It may be violent, but the best fighters are strategic, smart, and athletic. But none of this matters if the two competitors don't honor the sport or each other by breaking the rules. The rules that allow for each of them to compete at their best, but more importantly, to walk away with their lives intact. We've all heard the saying that rules are meant to be broken. But if this story teaches us anything, is that in boxing, that particular rule should not apply. Everything has rules. Anything without rules is anarchy. Anarchy. And under anarchy, you don't need rules because there's nobody around to enforce them anyway. This is as close to anarchy as you can get. Hey, good people. Just before we go, don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get them. And not that you're going to do it because we ask, but it helps if you leave us a rating and a review as well. Next time on Cheat, it's the fraudster who charmed the aficionados of fine wine and cheated them out of millions. Now you have to tell me where you found these wines. You must know where you bought them. And suddenly both the auctioneer and Rudy Kernawan uh, had their nose in their plate uh, mumbling something we don't know I buy so many wines blah blah Cheat is written and presented by me Alzo Slade the producer for this episode is Mira Kumar the series editor is Joe Sykes and the original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller the executive producer is Tom Koenig engineering sound design and scoring by Martin Peralta our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah Delarue. And a big thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Ella McLeod, Dasha Litsitsina, Chris Skinner, and Arlie Adlington. <laughs> <laughs>